So at the end of last year, I finished a series on James and praying to God, I was asking, where do we go from there? How do we move forward? What is it going to look like for us? So we were, we were going through James. We did a series through James. If you want, you can go back and listen to that. And, uh, and it was quite challenging for me. And I, and I was praying to God and just asking, where to now? I, I, I don't like not having a direction when, when preparing sermons because it's scary. You get to about Wednesday and you have no idea what you're going to say. And then Thursday and then Friday and you start thinking, hey, God, I need to start preparing something. And, and, and that can be challenging. So in a way, a, a series for me is more comfortable because I can sit at the beginning and I can know the next six weeks where we're going. But the, the challenge with that is that it's also difficult to ensure that I'm staying where, where Holy Spirit's asking me to stay. And I was, I was praying while I was on the treadmill and I felt God say to, to do Ephesians. But then I got into this internal wrestle, as you do, as to whether or not that's my comfort zone because I want to do another series or if... It was really what God said. So I said, okay, God, if this is real, I need, I need some confirmation. And I kid you not, probably seven times during the week, I got people, a guy just ring me and just say, hey, bro, I think, I think God's really like just burning through Ephesians. Is, is, are you feeling that? And I was like, no, nah, it's not enough. I'll just check and see. It's not enough. That's two. But I'm not joking, along and along and along, I felt this thing. So I sat down and, and said, okay, God, we, we've done a, a journey through Ephesians before, but I, I just, even just me going back through it during the week and, and re, rereading it and, and re-churning, there's so much that God unpacks. There's so much. And I, 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 more and more now as I read the scriptures, I'm trying to slow down and read less. Because I find that if I try to read more, even as I'm getting excited, I just there's so much we miss. So again, going into a series, I don't know how long it's going to go for because I don't know how long I, I achieved. We will achieve this morning through to, to verse 16, really, if I can get through everything that I've got here. But there is so much in the scriptures, and it it blows my mind that a book that is so old can still be so alive and so brand new that you can read a verse and, and then go, I never saw that word before. And then you go back through, has that been there the whole time? Or have they, is this like a new version? But the beauty of, of the scriptures of God, and I love the scriptures, is that they are alive. When you read them with the understanding that this is alive and it's an, it's an organism and it's, it's changing your life, then, then reading the scriptures doesn't become a boring just get through today's five-minute reading. But you can just do a 30-second reading and that thing, you chew on it all week. So bear with me as I go through this, but I really feel like there's some big topics in this first five or six lines of Paul's teachings in Ephesians. And I want to try and tackle some of the big things this morning. But we have to, as always, and, and before we start any book, we have to understand what pardon me what is taking place in the in the surrounding areas so paul is is writing to a church in ephesus and from what we understand by most scholars and and most of the understanding and teaching that was coming through is that paul was in prison in ephesus while he was writing this letter and as while he wrote what's called the prison epistles other uh, letters like philemon and other things that paul had written while he was in prison 
But the fascinating thing about Ephesians is that Ephesians had at the time, or Ephesus rather, had at the time one of the, I should have written it down, seven or eight um, ancient wonders of the world. So there was, a, there was a pagan temple that was in Ephesus that was the biggest pagan temple in all of the Eastern world. So Paul is writing from a position where the biggest most worldly attack is being taken in a city. So we look over now at the political landscape and we think to ourselves, oh God, God hasn't won or he's not going to be able to win because there's so much things churning in the political world or there's so much things that's happening undercover. Yet all through the scriptures, these powerful men and women of God were riding into a time that was being ruled and controlled by pagan worldly systems. So Paul is writing to a city where there's a church where we see and we understand tons of black magic and dark magic was being used. We see that in Acts. We see that all throughout Paul's writing. So as I've preached before, what happens when you start to attack the enemy? The enemy doesn't like it very much and starts to attack back. But all of a sudden, when you become a powerful tool in God's arsenal, they start going, we don't want that guy around, so we're going to start slamming him. So you'll notice that but as you first become a Christian, everything's pretty easy, pretty breezy. Then you start learning about God and you start going, man, we should be out there. We should be. That's why I always say to new Christians, pump the brakes a little. Just hold on because there's a ride coming. That, and often, often new Christians get slammed because they shoot. No, the enemy knows that guy's not going to do anything. All of a sudden he starts doing something and they get slammed. And that's okay because we have a power to overcome that. We have a strength to overcome that. But the reality is when you start to push darkness back, they start to fight back. That's why all through the scriptures, all through the Old and New Testament, it was a war zone. It wasn't a peaceful protest. It was a spiritual battle. And Paul's letters to the Romans, to the Ephesians, to the Galatians, all of what he's saying is, hey guys, out there is a spiritual battle that's going on. And I, when we first went through this, Brad said something very interesting. He said, we're sending soldiers to war against machine guns with sticks and stones because we don't understand the power and the might that God's put inside us. We don't understand who we are to actually go out in the authority we've been given to push back the gates, to push back darkness. So Paul is in a place, we see... We see um, in Acts, but, but also throughout other, other areas of Paul, we see people burning their, um, their uh, magician books, for lack of a better term, their dark magic, their, their, their pagan rituals. They're burning these things and turning to Jesus because of Paul's teaching. So Paul at the moment is starting to cut through large levels of darkness. And in that, Paul gets beaten and battered and bruised. And I was, I was blown away during the week. I'm, I'm also, while I'm going through this, I've been reading N.T. Wright's book. And it's, it's um, N.T. Wright explaining the life of Paul. And, you know, I, I got to a place where I had so much respect and honor for this man. Because Paul, as a Pharisee, Paul, as a, as a learned scholar, Paul, as a, as a big man in, Ju in Judaism, would have come into a city and they would have welcomed him. He would have got the red carpet. He would have got a nice place to stay. He would have got good food. They would have treated him like a hero. Then he meets this Jesus, this king, this, this life changer. He goes away. He learns about him. He comes back. And then when he goes into the city, he goes in as the bottom of the bottom, the lowly of the lows. He gets beaten half to death. 
He gets ripped apart. He gets torn and then he stands back up. He walks into the next town. I can't remember which book it is, but he apologizes for the state he's in. Hey, sorry guys that I'm, I'm looking pretty terrible. I just nearly died trying to preach the gospel. So what are you doing here? I just want to keep preaching the gospel. See, we, we live in a, in a world today where we don't take into consideration the importance of our voice, the importance of who we are and the importance of what we carry. Paul understood that. I, I, I say this, I was saying this um, the other night, but I wish we saw the, just a, a glimpse of Paul's journey from one town to the other after he'd been beaten. I wish we got just a snippet just to see Paul. He must have, I know for me, I would have sobbed the whole way there. I would have sucked to God, God, I can't do this. I don't want to do this. This is too hard. But then he gets to where he's going and it was for the gospel, it was for the kingdom to be released. And he stands up with his shoulders back and he says, I know who I am and I'm here to give you the words of everlasting life. If I die, it'll be good for me. But if I live, I'm going to make sure that Christ is, Christ is proclaimed. He understood the time. He understood. N.T. Wright in that book, he he poses a question which I find quite interesting and he says, I wonder what Christianity today would look like if all the, the forefathers, the, the Luthers and, and those others who kind of formed the way for Western Christianity, if they used Ephesians as the center point for, the, for their understanding of building the church. Because what Paul, the way Paul writes is that us as, as, as believers who weren't, weren't Jews, he's saying you don't need all of that stuff because we'll just give you Christ. You don't need to worry about the law because you've just been given Christ. Just understand it from this perspective. You are one with the Jews in Christ. You've been joined together, brought in as one with them. So what I think Ephesians is actually is, what, what Ephesians actually builds is a platform for us as a church to know how to operate in a world that doesn't want us to operate. It's funny when I hear some Christians get upset that, that people don't treat them well. Because I go, but Jesus said that. Jesus said they're going to hate you. You've got to go in with the mentality to go, I love you. You hate me? Oh, that's right. Jesus said you're going to. I still love you. Right? We have to operate in a world where, where our first response is love, regardless of what it's going to be. Because I promise you, you are going to experience hatred toward you. And as the world goes further and further away from the principles of, of Judeo-Christianity, it's going to get worse and worse. But if you know who you are, like Paul did, if you know who, you, who you've been called to be, if you know who Christ is in you, then it doesn't matter because you know that. We have to understand that the plans of the enemy, that everything that is, was put forth by the enemy to destroy us, God has worked out in the Scriptures. As we read, as we understand, as the, as the mystery becomes enlightened to us, we find more and more and more of the answers to the pain and suffering that's trying to be brought upon us. That God, we have to trust that God has allowed us the answers to the problems that are before us. And yes, they come through your prayer times. They come through dreams and, and prophetic visions. But one of the, the, the primary, most important places is your scriptures. Not my computer, but your scriptures. My, my actual Bible's in there. But it comes from that place. So we have to begin to think, we have to begin to understand the answers that God is, that we are asking, the pains and the sufferings that we are walking through are coming through what God is saying to us. We have to understand that we live as residents of heaven 
operating as kings and priests on assignment in the world. We are first spiritual beings, which means that our home, our residency is heaven. But we are here operating as what? Kings and priests, the highest authority in the land to see about the work of God. So I stand in a position that I'm about my father's business. I'm about the business of a king because I am his resident. I am the representation of the father on the earth. But this is not my home. My home is there, seated at the right hand of the father in Christ. Because when I was born again, that became my primary position. That as a spirit being, we all are spirit beings, whether we're saved or not. But as a spirit being, I become in Christ, who's seated in the place of authority. So if we can work out that this life here is our assignment, and like I always say, our hundred years, when we tick over our hundred years, that we are achieving the assignment because we're living from a place that's up there. We're not aiming to get from heaven, we're living from heaven as residencies, as, as a resident of the holy place. But we have a task to do, we have an authority to carry as kings and priests as we operate as image bearers of him. That is the spiritual mandate by which God gave Adam and Eve in the garden. That mandate is still important to us. That mandate still gets carried over to expand the garden, to expand the kingdom, to outwork the things of God, to go forth and multiply the land, to ensure that, that, that the kingdom of God is known through every part into all the outer parts of the land. So we have to understand that this is a spiritual journey. I'm going to need to go to about quarter past 11. I've just realized. I haven't even read the scripture. I'm sorry. Ephesians 1, chapter 3, because 1, 2, and 3 is just Paul saying that I'm Paul, the apostle. This is who I'm writing to, the people in Ephesians. But I want to read this, and then I'm just going to go and break, break down the themes, I think, that come through this. So chapter 1, verse 3. Paul says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purposes of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were seated with the promised, sorry, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I think to sum that up, when you read that, to break all that down and, and understand what that means for us contemporarily, what that means right now in, in, in this time, I think is this. We have been given a blessing that we are predestined for adoptions as sons in Christ, sealed with the Holy Spirit to the praise of his glory. That sums up what Paul's saying, that us as a people have been given a blessing that we're predestined for adoption as sons in Christ and sealed with the Holy Spirit for his glory. That's what Paul's explaining. Paul's explaining that as a people, this is who we are. This is who we get to be. In that first three lines, he says blessed and blessing three or four times. But he's saying that there is a blessing that you have been given, every spiritual blessing. You think about that. We dream about heaven. We've talked as kids, as we've grown up, what will it be like? What are the blessings? What's the glory? What, is it, what does it feel like? And yet Paul has the audacity in this letter to say that we have been given every spiritual blessing that is in that place right here now on earth as we are that every blessing has come but it's interesting the way paul wraps it up because he says that every blessing i've given every blessing but it says every blessing that we should be holy and blameless before him so being holy and blameless before the father is actually a blessing not a curse us operating in holiness, us operating without being blamed for certain things is actually a blessing, not a curse. I've had this thought, so I would suggest most of, most of us have, but I wonder, you wonder and you go, man, if I wasn't a Christian, I'd be able to go and do all this fun stuff, especially as a kid. You look at other guys and you go, man, if I wasn't a Christian, I wouldn't have to fit into these, do these things that I'm not allowed to do. It almost felt like growing up as a kid that, that being a Christian was actually a curse. Like, man, why would I want to do that? Why would I want to take on some of these nonsense rules that you guys have? But what Paul is saying, no, that's not a curse. It's a blessing from heaven. One of the highest blessings from heaven that you understand that this world operates a particular way and those things you want to do, those things that you think are helpful for you, those things that you think are good are actually no good for you. That's the curse. So the blessing that we actually see is, is, oh, wow, I didn't realize those things were going to hurt me. I didn't realize that that was going to cause me pain. But Paul in this opening letter is saying, no, you've been given a blessing that you're understanding, you're learning the mysteries of the way the Creator created this world. If we think, just do this little thought experiment with me, if you believe that God created the world, if we believe that, then we have to also believe that he understands the best way to live in the world, right? Because he created it. He knows the best way to do it. He knows the best way to write it, to make it work, to, to, to work through it. So then when we read his scriptures, we're understanding from the creator the best way to operate in this world. But the world being broken and lost wants to define it to say, no, that's not the best way. This is what's best for you. Money, sex, drugs, car, whatever it is for you. Work hard to play hard. We got caught in this thing where we missed, we stopped understanding who the creator was and who was creating the life to say, hey, this is the way. If, if, 
if someone said to you, here's a puzzle, and if you, create, if, if you finish the puzzle, I'll give you a million dollars, and the guy who created the puzzle is standing right there, you can ask him whatever you want. Would you go to the other end of the room and just sit down and try and achieve the puzzle? No, you'd go sit next to the guy who designed it and you'd say, hey, show me for the love of the Lord how to do this so I get a million dollars. I'll give you a couple of thousand. That's what we have in this life with God. We get to sit with the creator and say, how do I do this? Hey God, how do I do this? My work's hard at the moment. My relationships are hard. But talking to you is hard. How do I do this? How do I get into this place? Every spiritual blessing has been given from heaven. And in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. He predestined us. Predestined us. He predestined us. You can't Greek or Hebrew away that word. It says predestined. You can't change up your version. It says predestined. So then you get yourself in this position, well, are we predestined or are we whatever the other one is? I can't remember. Arminianism, but I don't know what it's called. So you have to wrestle with this. So we actually get ourselves to a position and I start reading through and I go, do I read over this really fast so people don't think I say it and then we'll just move on? Or do we actually have to tackle with something that's a little bit big and a little bit challenging? But see, when we say predestined already in our brain, we start thinking what we've been told as a kid. And for me, what that meant is that some are predestined for heaven and some are predestined for hell. And I've always wrestled with this to the point where I stopped talking to people about predestination because it frustrated me so much. Because I get to a place in that where I go, how can a loving God get himself to a position where he creates somebody and then instantly damns them to hell? So then you go, well, maybe I'm on the other side. So you go over to the other side and you read the, the points of Arminianism and you think, well, some of that's nonsense as well. I don't know if I fit there either. So then I get into this confused place where I just take predestination and I put it there and I go, I'm not going to touch that again. And if someone asks me, I will quickly walk away and I just won't talk about it. But I heard, I heard a guy say, I think it was uh, Mark Driscoll said, um, that when we hear something, we do one of three R's. We receive it, we reject it, or we redeem it. So everything we do, we do one of the three R's. We receive it, we redeem it, or we reject it. So when I sat down to go back through this, I started saying to God, okay, which of the three am I going to do? How do I position myself in this? And God took me to a verse that I've, I've, I've read many times before in this conversation, but it just re reinforced it for me. It's in 2 Peter chapter 3. Verse 9. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. It says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all, that all, should reach repentance. So in this, we understand that God's heart, the heart of the Father, is that all creation, all people, shall not perish, but shall reach a place of repentance. Okay, so then everyone gets saved. No one goes to hell. No, you can't read that. You're stretching it again. So you've got to go back. What does it say? That some, that, that all will reach repentance. So what that means is that there is some of us that will not reach repentance. 
that there is a place that you have to come to where you decide Jesus is my King, my Lord, and my Savior, and I repent for the life that I've lived out on my own. That's that position of repentance. So it doesn't mean that we all get to go to heaven, unfortunately. Because it means that we have to make a decision to walk with him. We have to make a decision that we want to live his life, not our life. That we want to give ourselves over to him. And then you read, read the next verse, which I've got here from Psalms 139, verse 16. Psalms 139, 16 says this. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. David speaking to to God. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So before you lived any days, every day was numbered before you. Every day was given before you. So for Paul to say that we have been predestined by God means that in this is is what David explains to God is that before I was even born, God had written the days before me. But the way I understand it is like this. Jess's family comes from a line of farmers. Jess's granddad um, still lives on a farm out, whoop whoop, somewhere. And he, his father was a farmer and his father was a farmer. And what happened was a farmer would be on the land and a farmer would prepare the land to fix, to, to, to bring up and raise up for the next generation so that the, there would be enough farming to look after the next family after him and then the next after him. So each farmer was farming with the thought of how will I present a world for my kids that they can continue on to theirs. So what they do is they start predestining, they start building a life for the son that's been born. So a father stands on the farmland and he farms the land, he has a son, he starts teaching the son the way of the farm. That At a point, the son takes over and the father slips off into the distance, eventually passes away. And then that son starts to look after the farmland until he has another son. And he raises that son up. And each generation predestines the year before the, the, the son to take over the land. But what happened in Jess's dad's case is that drought and other things made him decide, I don't want to take the land. And in actual fact, all the other sons said, we don't want the land either. But the father still predestined that decision for them to take the land over. It was still, they still know how to farm. Jess's dad is incredible when he goes to the farm. It's like he comes a fish in water. He knows how to operate the farm because it was planned before him. But the father can never, ever take the choice away from the son because the moment he forces the son to become a father, he no longer loves the son. He starts operating outside of love. But the teaching is still being predestined. The farm is still being prepared for a son to take over. So when we bring that into understanding about what God's saying when he says, I've already written your days, is that all of us, I've said this a hundred times before, have a scroll that God has written in our life. But guess what? He will not force you to live out your scroll. He has predestined a life for you. But we get to decide if we live that life. We get to decide if we stay on the farm and we farm the land or if we go and we try and make a way for ourselves. 
all the way through our Christian walk, we are wrestling with who's the author of our story. Am I the author or is he the author? Am I living my life that I've predestined for myself, that I'm trying to make happen, or am I allowing his predestined life for me to outwork? Does that make sense? So just like a father passes down a preparation for his son, God, before you were born, has written you a story. So then as kids, we always used to say, well, no, we'd punch our brother. Did God know I was going to punch my brother? Did God know I was going to do that? But there's a reality that I get to decide. Not everything I do is because God told me to do it. Okay, I'm not (laughs) at all perfect. But what I'm trying to understand, God, is where are you telling me to step? What have you prepared me for? What have you shown me? What have you exampled my life to be? What are the tools you've given me to work the farm? How do I milk the cows? How do I plow the field? How do I understand how to to do certain things? And you know, the interesting thing is that every time we go to, to Jess's family farm and all the brothers are there, Jess's uncles, and we've been out, there's been a big argument in the field because we shouldn't cut a tree down that way or we shouldn't plow the field that. When we all come back in and granddad's sitting at the table with his cup of tea, he's the, he's the voice of reason. He's the authority. He hasn't cut a tree down, I couldn't tell you for how long. But he knows how to do it and everyone listens. So what, ha- what was an argument in the field, now you should have cut it this way or that way or you don't put the feed in with the cattle that way, you get back to the table, granddad, how should we put the feed in with the cattle? He says it, everyone goes, ah, see? Because granddad knows. Why? Because he's the authority of the farm. So what we get to do, what we become in a position is we come back as kids, as sons around the table with the father and he tells us, this is what I laid out for you. So now our whole life starts becoming, God, what have you predestined for me? What have you laid out for me? Where am I to step? What's your plan? What's your purpose? So when we say it's death to ourself, When Jesus says, lay down yourself, he's saying, you're not a very good author. I'm a better one. Live the life I've given for you to live. Lay down you being in charge and let me take over and I'll show you where we can go. We have been predestined, all of us. That should excite us to the core. It should bring us to to overjoy to say, the Lord has written my life, but I've got to let him be in charge. And I promise you, he'll do it better than you can do it. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. We've been tied in. We've been brought in to a family. We we become sons and daughters. So that story about sitting around the table, it's because we come into adoption. Sorry, into sonship from adoption. We come into the family of God. That's why I spoke last week about being family, about the fact that we all come together. It's because in Christ we we become sons of him. But often we misunderstand the spirit of adoption. When Adam and Eve were created in the garden, they were created in God. They were created in him. They were made as a part of him as sons and daughters. It says sons because it doesn't, emphasize the daughters given the time that it was written but children of him sons and daughters of him right they were in him when eve takes the fruit and adam and eve fall away god comes to the garden he says adam where are you god knew where he was he was behind that fig tree over there 
God knew physically where he was. But what happened was that he was removed from inside of him so that no longer the spirit of man and the spirit of God were intertwined. So he says, where are you? He says, why has your spirit left me? You've become lost. You've become, you've become orphans. No longer in my family. No longer sons and daughters because you entered into death that I told you not to do. So what happened in that time, Adam and Eve leave the garden so that they couldn't take from the fruit of, of, of life so that they could work themselves out. But the rest of the journey, all the way from Genesis to Christ dying on the cross, is about God redeeming the sonship and adopting us back into him. About becoming sons again. The story of the prodigal son when he runs up the road and the father puts back on him the ring to purchase, the, the, the cloak to cover, the shoes for his feet, was saying, you were, you were a lost boy out there. You were an orphan in the pig pen. But you return as a son in my house with an authority with an ability to use that ring to purchase whatever you want. You come back as a son. But what happens when we get saved, when we get born again, is our soul, our mind, will, and emotions can't compute with the fact that our spirit has become whole again. So as Paul says, I endeavor to be renewed by the, trans by the transformation of my mind, by the transforming of my mind, is so that my mind understands what my spirit is. So all of the time, our Christian walk is a wrestle between orphanhood and sonship. Or daughterhood, if you'd like to put the daughterhood in there. Our whole journey is understanding, do you know who I am? I'm a king of the Most High. Sorry, I'm a, I'm a son of the Most High. So when we come against a situation in, in, in our prayer time and we're facing a, a, an enemy, we're facing a challenge, there's a right response to say, hey, do you know who I am? I'm a son to the Most High. I'm a priest. I'm the one in which he's called in. I'm in a higher place than you can even begin to understand. But we have to understand and stop acting as if we're orphans. Please, sir, can I have another? And start understanding who we are as sons and daughters in the kingdom of God. One of the first things that we often our brain goes to in this though is finances. Well, I can ask God for whatever money that I want. No, the father still operated with the son to say, hey, is that wise? There was still a, a communication, God, I'm trying to do this. Then here's the finances for it because it's a good idea. We still have to go to the Father. We still have to work our decisions and our outworkings through with him. But we are children of the Most High. And we have to live like that. We have to operate like that. We have to leave our orphan mentality behind. One of the things that I struggle with the most in this, and I have to understand how to work through this, is who I am. And the fact that I can achieve what he's asked me to achieve. That's an orphan mentality when I don't feel good enough. That's an orphan mentality when I stand in front of the mirror and I go, you can't do this. That's me needing to break off that orphan mentality. When I walk into a meeting scared out of my boots because I don't know what to say, that's an orphan mentality. That every day I'm breaking and I'm trying to remove. Every day I'm saying, God, take this thing from me. Because I know who I am. I know who you've made me. Someone made a great quote somewhere. 
and it's lost in my notes, so I won't be able to tell you what it is. I might find it in a second. But there's a, there's a reality that we have to understand. There's a reality that we have to get to where we go, I know who I am. It's not arrogant. It's not pride. It's, a, it's an insurance of I know who I am. You see, we have an issue with, with a, a thing called tall poppy syndrome in Australia where if someone's doing better than me, I've got to rip them down to get them onto my level. If someone gets a pay rise, I feel dirty and upset about it because why should they get a pay rise because I didn't. But do you know what that is? That's an orphan mentality because I should know who I am and I should celebrate that person. Well done, man. You did so well there. But what happens is we start going, well, is anyone thinking about me? Has anyone, has anyone looked at me today? I don't, someone better tell me that I'm good at this. Jeez, I haven't got a word of affirmation for a while. Someone better tell me. Because what happens is we get ourselves in a position where we forget who we are. But God, through his scriptures, through his words, is constantly reaffirming, you're my son. You're my son. You know, I went to a, a, the prophetic um, council meeting during the week and I found myself having to give myself a little slap because I walked in and I sat down and when worship was finished, I started thinking, ooh, it'd be nice to get a word. It'd be nice if someone called me out. And I started realizing, do you not know who you are? I had this internal dialogue that I think God was saying to me, you don't need them to call you out on stage and tell you who you are. I've been telling you all week. Now, that's not to say that the prophets can't do that or shouldn't do that, but it was a, a lesson for me to go, oh, God, I was acting like an orphan. Please, sir, can I have some more? And I realized right there, I've given you all you need. You know who you are. You know where you've been positioned. You know what you've been asked to do. Stop looking for something else. We have to operate as sons and daughters in the kingdom. That's how the church becomes powerful. That's how the church starts to step up into who we are, starts to operate in who we are. That as we begin to know who we are as sons and daughters of the Most High, we become powerful as a people. We don't shrink back because we know the power that God carries. We go into situations confident and assured that he's going to speak, that he's going to move, that he's going to do what he promised he would do. Paul continues on. He says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished, poured out, was, did not hold back, was over the top upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. We are positioned in Christ seated at the right hand of the Father. We are positioned in Him. The power that we draw on, the, the authority that we draw on comes from inside Christ. That we have to understand that when we stand in a position, we're drawing on Him. How do we know this? Because before Jesus went to the cross, in John 17, chapter 20, before He went to the cross, He cried out to the Father. His petition to the Father was, I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also 
may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus' petition to God the Father before he goes to the cross was, Lord, make them like us together inside me, unity in us. Our position, the place we fight from, our home is in him. So now when we come down, we operate from this place. We're not trying to get up to heaven. We're operating and ruling and reigning with God as co-laborers with him from heaven. Now, that doesn't mean, so Ben, everything should be a breezy walk in the park. No, it wasn't for Paul. You might get beaten a bit. I'm sorry. This is what happens. We get beaten a bit. But Paul knew who he was. So that moment where Paul picks himself up on the ground and he walks himself to the next thing, I reckon there was a bit of crying. I reckon there was a bit of, Jesus. Why? Because he's human. But when he got to the next town, he pulls himself together. He doesn't know who I am. You can beat me. You can kill me. You can torture me. But I know who I am and I know what I've been asked to do. And nothing, nothing will get in the way of that. The last thing, two things that he finishes with is, is uh, from chapter 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, the praise of his glory. A.W. Tozer said this. He said, my I am is that the great I am makes me who I am. That when Jesus said, he said, who do I say? Tell them I am sent them. Why? Because Moses, I want you to understand the power and the glory that you have. When you say I am, you know who it is. I am. Because the I am made me who I am. So when I step into a situation when God says, who am I? Tell them I'm the I am. I love a guy. It's like a little, like a sneaky joint. Tell him I'm the I am. And Moses must be that. God, doesn't make any sense. And then he gets there before and he goes, oh, I get it. I am carrying the power and the glory of the King Most High who created the throne you're sitting on, Pharaoh. The God that's in me, the God that made me, who sent me, created the thing that you're operating from. That's what Moses has given. That's the thing that says you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. The fact that we become the temple of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit, means that when we operate, we operate with God moving through us. 1 Corinthians 2.11 says, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him, so also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So the only thing on this earth that comprehends God is in us. I don't know if you got that. The only thing on this earth that comprehends God is in us. So when we go into a situation, the enemy doesn't know what God's doing. But the only person on the earth who does is where? In us. So when we allow the Holy Spirit to flow through us into a situation, we catch the enemy off guard. 
Because God is the only one who knows. The Spirit of God is the only one who knows what God's thinking and doing. And he decided that it would be clever to put himself or his spirit inside his workers to give them the ultimate upper hand. So this life that we live, though it is difficult, is rigged in our favour. It's actually rigged. Because the only person who understands the plans and purpose of the one who created the whole thing is in us. When we understand that we are children who carry that, it changes the way we operate. It changes the way we operate. And it fin- I'm finishing right, right, meow-ish. It finishes with this. <laughs> it finishes with this. Because this is, in- this is important, how it finishes. Because all this stuff, this message, right, it pumps us up and makes us feel powerful. And it does, and it should. And we should feel invincible. We should feel on top of the world. We should feel, I can shift any situation and change any plan, any purpose. But what tends to happen with humans is that we get a little bit too sure of ourselves. We put a few too many tickets on ourselves. But Paul wraps it up beautifully to say, you are sons and daughters loved by the Most High, given all the blessings of heaven. You are that. And in that, you will do great things. But he ends by saying, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption. But he ends, he ends by saying, the forgiveness of our trespass according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of our times to unite all things in him, things in heaven on our earth. But he says to the praise of his glorious grace, which has been blessed in the beloved. All of this, all of this comes down to the fact that it's for his glory. He has empowered us. He has made us sons. He has instilled in us. He loves us. He pours out on us. He lavishes us. He makes us undefeatable. He makes us powerful and righteous and incredible. But it's for his glory. And the moment we lose that, the wheels start to fall off. During the week, I was chatting with a mate about a a book by John Piper, and he says this in it a book called Desiring God, he says, we strive against God's all-sufficient glory if we think we become a means to his end without making joy in him our end. We go against his glory when we make what he's made us to be about us. He has made us for his glory on the earth. If he didn't, we would all be in heaven right now and we wouldn't be worrying about the rest of it. But he's saying there's a job to do. There's a position to take. There's a world to show who I am. And my son, my daughter, through your sonship, through your daughtership, I'm going to do it through you. So Paul's opening letter, before opening point to the Ephesians, before he starts his letter to say, this is how the church should look. This is how we're going to achieve it. Remember, this is who you are in this. This is who you are. You're my child. You're my son. But it's for my glory. It's for my glory to reach the ends of the earth. Is that okay? Why don't we stand?
Jesus, God, I thank you. Lord, I thank you that your plan goes beyond our understanding. Lord, I thank you that your purposes are beyond our tiny understanding. Lord, I thank you that you are the author of my life and not me. God, I am so glad that you've designed this and not me. Lord, I thank you that you allow us to be sons and daughters once again, that you allow us back in to your glory, back in to your kingdom. Lord, I thank you that you are the holy and righteous one. That even when we didn't deserve it, even when we were lost in our sin, you desired to make us found. That even when we were, we were in exile, that we had put ourselves in a place that we never ever wanted to be, that you showed compassion and love upon us to bring us back. And Lord, I thank you that you still meet with us, that you still lavish upon us your grace, that you still pour out upon us gifts, that you still have a heart for us to be where you want us to be. God, I thank you that the amount of times that we drop the ball, the amount of times that we lose the plot, you still wait for us. Guiding us back, leading us back to you, leading us back to the place you've got us. Lord, I love you. We honor you. We declare your kingship in this house. We declare your kingship in this city. And we declare your kingship in this nation. You rule and reign, Lord. We serve you and we honor you, Jesus. And we pray. God, I pray that if, if anything I've said this morning is not of me, may it fall away. But the things that you have outlaid here this morning to us, the things that you have set in our hearts, may they be planted among good soil and may they grow. We love you and we honor you. And in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.